I'm Commander Shepard, and Normandy FM is my favorite show on the Citadel. Normandy FM. 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 Welcome to another extra special, extra super, extra spectacular episode of Normandy FM, the one, the only Mass Effect retrospective podcast starring people named Eric Van Allen and Kenneth <laughs> Shepard. <laughs> we need a qualifier there. I know, we have to keep adding qualifiers because more people are out there doing the good work of spreading around Mass Effect. And this week we have a little bit of help with that because we've brought on one Aaron Garst here to talk about Mass Effect Andromeda. Aaron, how you doing? Doing pretty good, thanks for having me. Aaron, uh, before we get started uh, chatting up, first let's uh, give the folks at home an idea of, of who you are and, and what you kind of do in the general industry space. Just like both of you, I write articles uh, for different websites like The Verge and for uh, places like Polygon and Kotaku on uh, esports and, and video games in general and VR. I reviewed Mass Effect Andromeda way back when, when it came out, all those years ago. It's it's wild to think that it feels like forever since Mass Effect Andromeda came out and also like it was not actually that long ago when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, two years ago, what, 2017, right? Not, not yep. long at all. Oh, God. <laughs> Simpler times. Better, some would say better times. I don't know. I don't know, Ken, Ken, what do you like more, 2019 or 2017? Uh, 2019 has been going relatively better for me than 2017, so... Were were we still uh, were we still holding it down? Or, oh no, or, absolutely not. We, we were we were, we were past that. Yeah. Oh no no, I remember now. Twenty seventeen. Okay, it's it's fun to reflect when we have people on the show. It's always nice. Uh, and, and Aaron, I wanted to ask you specifically, like uh, when we bring people on the show, we tend to reach out to people and then kind of get an idea of what sort of characters they'd want to look at, what sort of characters they'd want to discuss. So, what was it about Cora that you want to come on this episode and and what is about Korra that you want to share because I gotta be honest we've been tough about Korra around these parts we've not been fans of Korra (laughs) and you told me that you like her like to some extent so to some extent (laughs) yeah I think I think the general consensus around Korra is is general dislike disdain you know we'll get into it later I'm sure but I I know I kind of thinking about it's been a while since I played the game um, I just replayed through the, this little mission on the save file, but I, I look looking at her history. I, I see where she's coming from. I see what she's done. I see how Bioware could have handled the character a little bit better and maybe made it more impactful. Um, but I, growing up in poverty, kind of latching on to whatever she could and finding that in the Ansari, it's it's relatable and it's kind of it's kind of easy to see yourself in that position and then how that interacts in the game. Um, I know 
you know, she'll get hurt for her obsession with the Asari, but I kind of think, look at it as a, as a, as a, you know, a point of vulnerability for her, which is, to me, is, is, mm. a, is a good thing for a character. Mm. Okay, mm. I could see that, I could see that. But I'm glad you brought that up, because that's where we're going to start this episode, is talking about that loyalty mission, because Korra kind of serves a dual purpose in both being a, a, a crewmate and a member of the Tempest, but also being kind of the 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 point person for finding the Asari arc, which Instead is... Instead of an actual Asari, so, you know, <laughs> great start. <laughs> Great start. Which, it's it's like her whole loyalty kind of revolves around this. And I will say, I will say up front, Ken, I'm sorry, there are parts of this loyalty mission I did actually enjoy. Mm. Uh, and I thought that, even considering the fact that it's super weird that they have a, a human character take on all this Asari stuff, there was, there were some diamonds in the rough. Let's put it that mm. way. Um... But we get to start off with some of my favorite stuff ever, which is open world bullshit. Because we, uh, first of all, we find an Asari refugee hanging out on Eos. They tell us very little, but give us enough info to then decide that we need to go to another planet to find more people. (laughs) Um, and, and I kind of left Eos going like, that couldn't have been like an email or a vid call or something? Like, we had to land on Eos to do this? To be fair, like, and we'll, let's, like, I'll talk about this now before we get into other loyalty missions that'll be gone, because we got like six episodes in a row of this. But something worth mentioning about the loyalty missions is they are, at least like the way that they are initially presented, they're supposed to be like, you chip away at them as the game is going on. So like, we would have... Like, if we got, if we did this part of the mission exactly when we got it, we would go to Eos, then later, like, maybe, like, a main story mission away, Korra would be like, okay, we're gonna, or I've tracked down the place on Vold where they were going, or something like that. I don't remember the exact specifics of how that plays out, but, like, they do it where, like, there's supposed to be, like, these ongoing threads throughout the entire game, which isn't like they were in Mass Effect 2, where you, it was, like, one and done. So, yeah, that's kind of open world bullshit but it's also like if you do these things when you get them it's not like you're constantly doing this back and forth to get you know between different states of one mission because it's supposed to be sort of strung out that way mm-hmm. yeah I, I get that no and i understand that and that that works in some cases especially if you have a character you really care about or maybe someone you're trying to romance someone that you're really mm-hmm. invested in mm-hmm. but with way, the way i handle side missions in most open world games like most recently i think red dead redemption 2 or something like that is that every once in a while i'll get tired of the main story or i just won't feel invested at that moment and i'll think oh i kind of just wanted to explore i kind of want to do that so what i do with andromeda is i would every once in a while every few hours in my playtime, i would just take a chunk and just do side missions so usually that would be further in the game and it did kind of just feel like like eric said like open world bullshit you're just going back and forth kind of like some like that could have been an email i didn't need to go in uh, to a certain area to fetch that so it works in in theory and it works sometimes but it's, it's going to be hit or miss no, no matter what you do that that kind of goes back to what i was saying like a, a week or so ago where i was saying like i don't feel like andromeda always values your time is that this is definitely a thing that they could have done over vid call just because then you wouldn't have had to do the eos thing or maybe you have some sort of thing where when you get to Vold, you get a call or a message, and they say, like, hey, an Asari refugee got in contact and said that 
a ship crashed on Volt because that's what we're we're trying to figure out. Well, we're trying to figure out because we know that there was a ship near Volt. I I, I don't think it was crashed immediately, but um, once we get there, we discover that we need to be looking for this ship that has somehow ended up on the planet. Which then we get more open world bullshit, which is running around hitting different quest markers, looking for a signal that is magically bouncing off the ice, which is maybe like the first time this has ever been introduced in this game. The the idea that the ice can bounce all these signals off, and I'm like, this wasn't... We've done a lot of things on this planet that involve signals from ships and stuff like that, but this is the only one where this happens. Cool. Uh... And, of course, it is the furthest one away. Uh, And then we get some information, and we find out where the actual arc is. And that's the whole thing. And I feel like there were about three or four steps to this kind of prelude to the actual loyalty mission that could have been slimmed down much more. And I know that the structure of this game is definitely... Like, I already encountered it earlier where I'd started a long one quest line uh, for Drac. I think I had done some of Drac's loyalty stuff early. And it was like, okay, well, I get to get going on this stuff, and I'll come back to it later. But I think in either direction that doesn't work, because if you're doing it early, between the early story missions, you end up just feeling this, like, screeching halt where your progression is just being artificially stopped. Because they're like, like, with Drax specifically, they bring up something about how we need to go find this. It's on this planet, and it's in the system, but we're not going there yet, so don't worry about it. And I was like, no, it's, we, we got time, Drac. It's all good. Like, there's what else are we doing here? Um, and meanwhile, if you're doing it where we are now, in this space, in this time, then we have this situation where it's like, we get going on it, and we're trying to burn through this stuff, and now we're having to go through all these planetary loading screens and all these dialogues that feel very, uh, like, arduous. It, that's the best word I can think of to describe it, is that... It, it either ends up feeling uh, jilted and disjointed, or it ends up feeling like too many steps to do something that is extremely simple at the end of the day. Uh, that was... I, I didn't like the run-up to this. And I know it's, I know it's always a, a difficult question to ask, and I don't like asking it too much, but we, like you're putting yourself in the developer's shoes. Like, Why do you think they... Do you think this was kind of just... They had been working on the game so long, and they... I felt this was a good choice or they hadn't they looked at it and, it and they thought it worked better i mean why do you think they had it this way where it kind of just this game doesn't need padding and it feels a bit like you know extra point after extra point and say you know it just kind of weighs down and you don't get to the point the core of the narrative why do you think they did it that way well i'll, I'll say i'll bounce this off to ken but i i'll echo what ken said earlier and that i think there is it, playing this game you can see the thinking and that they wanted you to be kind of going to a planet and then spending a lot of time there, like doing all these different side missions, building up planet viability. So it feels like a more cohesive game. And I, and I will also admit that like the way we are playing this game and looking back on this game is not uh, conducive to that sort of play style because we're trying to break this game up into discrete sections so we can discuss them and, and critique them and, and dive into them. But this game doesn't want to be divvied up in that way and 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 i before we started doing this podcast before we started doing andromeda we had discussions about this i remember talking to ken specifically being like how do we divvy up andromeda because even from what i had remembered of it 
there are so many different layers of progression that make this whole, but it's not the same as a Mass Effect 2 or a Mass Effect 3, where it's a much more linear, understandable walk from point A to point B. Instead, you have, okay, well, we've got the main story, but that's a relatively short thing. I mean, for all intents and purposes, where we are right now with the podcast, we are one episode away from being done with the main story completely. Like, we have hit the almost end of the critical path but we've got like seven more episodes to go because we need to talk about the loyalty missions we need to talk about settling the different home worlds and those are all different layers that build up to the greater whole that is andromeda so in in that respect i can i can understand i can see why they wanted to frame things like this because they were going for this feeling of building up andromeda over time and and so i'd I don't want to be like too critical of the developers in that sense because I do think that the way we are examining this is not always conducive to the way that they wanted this game to be experienced. But at the same time, I think the things that we find when we look at a game this way end up, you know, it's echoing a lot of the things I think were said about Andromeda at the time because people were jumping into this expecting that Mass Effect experience and expecting that Mass Effect structure. And when it wasn't immediately present, you know, when they were getting to the end of the critical, like, plot in eight to ten hours, maybe, uh, you start to feel a little bit shortchanged. Uh, but I'm interested in what you think about it, Ken. I just think that they... Because, like, when they made the loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2, they wanted it to be, like, this... Like, the end point of a, per- of a character's arc. But I think in Andromeda, it was just more, like... They wanted it to, like, run parallel to everything mm-hmm. else that was going on because yeah like what happens in the loyalty mission is ultimately what usually informs like the very end of like you know your relationship with a character regardless of like whether it's platonic romantic or or something else but I feel like because it, it's, it's a common thing you see throughout a lot of the game it's like they want these different missions to be something that you're progressing through or, like and like you even just said about like making like planets habitable like they want it to be this gradual thing that you're constantly kind of working toward in the game and like whether that's i don't really know that it's like you said it's very conducive to the way a lot of people play mass effect and i don't really like i don't i don't think it's even necessarily it's, it's certainly not the way that i prefer these things to be done because i think in a lot of these cases you could have had the loyalty mission be like you know the that very that core mission like the one that we're going to do when we go to the ark for Korra, and that kind of be it. Like, I don't feel like you needed all this extra, these extra steps and this extra padding. But it kind of feels more in line, but this approach feels in line with the game that Andromeda is. Not necessarily the game that I would have rather it had been, but it's just kind of dealing with the cards we've been given, I suppose. I will say that part of, part of recently my thoughts about Andromeda have been shaped by the fact that, Ken, you and I both played greedfall recently and aaron i don't know if you've played greedfall or, or read any coverage about it have you seen stuff about it at all yeah i've read coverage about it but i haven't played it myself i read the Gotaku review i read ken's review a couple other things so i'm up it but i haven't been able to play it it's um i i was thinking about that game because when i was covering it it was like you you hit this point where you realize uh, very early on i realized uh because of something that happens in the main plot is that it, the game wants you to complete all these side quests and then move the main plot forward. And it feels like the exact opposite kind of progression that we have here, 
with Andromeda, where Andromeda is kind of like, oh, you know, we're going to give you the tools to go do the things that you want to do. It, you know, from what I understand, some things may affect the ending in different ways, but generally it wants you to, like, explore where you want to explore. You do the things you want to do. It's a little bit more open, a little bit more free-flowing, whereas Greedfall was very much... Once you hit certain points of the story, if you haven't done something, the story will change and also everything will get locked out. And it one of one of my larger critiques about that game is that it did not signpost those things very well either. So you end up in situations where you think you're going in for a normal conversation to kind of keep the the main plot thread going and all of a sudden one of your characters pulls a pistol on you. <laughs> and it's uh in that way I kind of I've started to come around a little bit on Andromeda's structure. I still don't think it's fantastic. I still think in, in terms of a Bioware-style RPG that the Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3 structure just makes a lot more sense to me. Mm. Uh, but I do at least... I, I've started to see that... I think the, the, the thing that Mass Effect had to deal with was that that style of RPG is just not existent anymore. You can say that Greedfall is a Bioware-style RPG in the old style, like Dragon Age or Dragon Age 2, but even that was starting to get in some open-world concepts that were much yeah. more than Dragon Age ever had. You know, Dragon Age had very discrete sections where you could kind of explore, but you were really funneled, whereas Greedfall has you popping around the different locales very frequently and, and wants you to cross the earth and back again to to do certain missions like you would in an open world game and mass effect andromeda had to live in a world where rpgs were not being made at that scale anymore and i it it made me wonder a little bit if andromeda had come out and had been the size of mass effect 2 or 3 instead of the size of what it is if that would have been the critique levied against it that it was just too little it felt like dated Mm -hmm. um I've been having a lot of those thoughts recently because you try to think about why they made some of these choices and especially the places where Andromeda shines. And it is in, I, again, I do think this loyalty mission once we get to the arc is actually pretty good (laughs) and, uh, felt very mass effecty, but also it made me realize how little mass effect stuff we've done, but also how much it made those moments shine when we got to do stuff like this. So I'm back and forth on it, but we do need to go save this arc because now we know where it is. We know what's going on. And we're going to go help out a uh, someone that Cora is a big fan of uh, in Asari Commando named Sarissa, who apparently wrote the manual on being an Asari Commando. And this only just now started like getting brought up, but it felt very sudden for Cora uh, to suddenly be like, yeah, I've got the... The, the She wrote the book on being an Asari Commando. I know everything she's done. I know everything about her. It's great. Um, and so we really get Korra at like peak Asari Otaku in, in, this, <laughs> in this mission. Uh, no, you kind of call it uh, Wea Blue. Is it Wea Blue? I think or people were, I read that online. Wea Blue, you know, like Wea Boo. <laughs> Jesus. Oh God. Christ. Oh no. <laughs> well, Ken, there's your episode title. I, I literally just saw like an episode title. <laughs> um. So once we get to the arc, it's clear that everything's been going real bad. Uh, it's messed up like the the Turian and Salarian arcs were, but here the the Sari basically try to space us immediately immediately as we get there, and, which is a pretty uh, good scene. Yeah, it's it's pretty good, uh, and we quickly get an assessment of the situation, which is that the Ket have been chasing them all over 
because not only is the original Pathfinder uh, Matriarch Ashara dead, uh, but Sarissa has stolen charts that help the cat navigate through the Scourge, the, the giant evil space monstrosity that is everywhere in Andromeda. And so they obviously want that back because that seems pretty critical to have <laughs> in the middle of Andromeda. Um, and so we need to get this arc operational and moving again. Uh, so we go down below deck to help out Videria, who is second to Sarissa, but extremely rookie. Uh, mm. And again, this is Andromeda setting up like one of its favorite story beats with Pathfinders, especially, is this idea that the people who have shown up in Andromeda like the people in the upper crust the upper echelon of the andromeda initiative are all extremely well prepared extremely uh veteran they know their stuff you know sarissa literally wrote the book on being an asari commando and then everyone who's below that is just kind of whoever was going to sign up for what amounted to a suicide mission into space (laughs) um and, and this was the this was maybe the mission where i thought that dynamic played out in the most interesting way because for the most part up until now we haven't had the chance to see what that looks like because often the person who is supposed to be in charge is already dead which is a funny comment in and of itself but uh seeing this dynamic in action the fact that you've got this upper crust who definitely is like we know what's best to do we know how to get things done just shut up and listen to us and then the the lower rank people who are very green who are very new but are also then a little bit less let's say set in their ways so we're not giving away all of the discussion early on um who you know they're they're kind of the ones that are portrayed as idealistic and hopeful and maybe not the sort of caliber of talent that you would look for Mm -hmm. for a leader but definitely the ideals and the vision that you would want from a leader I thought that was one of the more interesting parts of this mission is that you get this dynamic, this dichotomy between the the veteran who is jaded and cynical and has flown out to Andromeda for whatever reason they have and and demands respect, believes they've they are entitled to it, and then the the rookies who are very much just trying to make a lie for themselves and do the right thing. Yeah, I, I didn't get that as much. I mean, the the, the, the dynamic. I feel like. It's weird because, as we've talked about, I mean, or at least Offpod talks about how Korra builds up the Asari and she builds up her old group, um, which she was, you know, rejected from um, because of her bionics. So when she she builds that up, you kind of already have this big expectation coming in of who you're going to meet. And I feel like it all kind of focuses on that. And at least for me, and I, I, you know, I definitely have a very action focus when I play games like this, especially... um, especially action open world games where I've kind of focused on uh, playing the heavy, playing the warrior, very, very, uh, you know, aggressive focused. And then the rookies kind of just came off as, as okay. Like they're not as, they're not as up to a domino standards. Like, well, I think what at one point during the mission doesn't, uh, I think one of them cowers in a tunnel and doesn't want to engage. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then she kind of pushes it. Like you're, you're an Asari hunter. Like you don't have right. another option. Right. Which I thought was like an interesting dy- dynamic wasn't as as deep as the other ones, but that was kind of like okay, like uh, do I want to go and save them? Like, like even though I didn't have the option to, that was that was an interesting dynamic to me. But just to get that build up of the Asari hunters, like there's this great group, 
they're these fantastic, the best in the galaxy, and then to, and then to see that, I swear, like they're they're afraid to even engage this enemy that no. we're yeah. blowing through, no problem. This is interesting because yeah. I think it's going to reflect some things that we say later on in this episode. I'm now realizing that I'm, I might be on the other end of Ken on the spectrum now. <laughs> oh, oh well. Well, I was just going to point out that also, like you talked about the part where Cora's like, "Oh, you're an authority huntress." You should do this. I can't stand the way that she in this entire mission is like uh. using Asari terminology and like telling the Asari how to be a huntress and I'm just like I like so like we already have we already had discussion about her like the way that she talks about the Asari culture like it's her own it's like one thing to, it's it's one thing it's one bad thing to say it to writer but her to say it to like the face of an Asari just like Girl, what are you doing? Like, what? It and there's a there's a line, like at the very end of this mission, where somebody says something along the lines of, "Like, is that your decision? Is that your choice to make?" Like, talking about her having opinions on the way that the Asari should handle themselves in Andromeda, and I was like, "That," and we'll get we'll get to it later. But like, I needed somebody to say that to her, like, fifteen hours ago. Of well, gameplay, we, like we can move things along a little bit because yeah. I mean, at this point, we just kind of get into a little bit of combat where we're we're holding down a thing while Sam does his magic, which is nice. It's it, it was cool to see them add a little bit of extra combat stuff, even though like for me, I was I was feeling great because at this point in the game, um, I'm finally starting to get to the point where I like my build again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hit max level barriers, which gives me the. Um, Every time I kill somebody with a biotic ability, I get shields back. Oh, nice. And I also leveled up biotic lance all the way. And at max level, that makes the cooldown almost nothing, but I use up shields every time I use my biotic lance. So mm. I kind of just throw out singularity and then start throwing biotic lances into the middle of it to create just massive biotic explosions. And it's kind of nice. awesome. It's it's This was the game... Like, I will just say this, for all the Mass Effects prior, and even the first time I played Andromeda, I was a vanguard, because at the end of the day, that was what felt, that felt like the way that Mass Effect was designed to be played, in some ways, was that vanguard charge shotgun combo. Every time I played other classes, they felt interesting, but never felt like it was using that system to its best capabilities. But here in Andromeda... This game has finally made biotics, like, just raw biotics feel really, really good. Uh, So I am fully enjoying my adept playthrough now that my skills are leveled up a little bit. And maybe that's a reflection more on how the system could have been better, uh, because I think it also suffers from trying to do the Mass Effect thing where you do these incremental upgrades, and then once you get to the end of the the tech tree for each various ability that's when you start getting the things that really change how the ability works because leading up to it it's like oh it's nice that my biotic lance does more damage now or maybe like has a lower cooldown or something but that doesn't feel like when i put a point in it when i've when i've spent a lot of time earning that point and i put a point in it i want it to change in some way that feels better than just what what feels like a numbers adjustment and so once I've gotten to the end of these tech trees where you can really change the abilities, that's where I've felt more right. like, like the abilities are just more interesting there. Um, and I think they 
kind of like my read on that is that by the time that you get to those upper levels, you've kind of learned how it is that you utilize a skill. So like you know what is like the more kind of like natural progression of something, mm-hmm. it, like in terms of how it fits your playstyle. Because for me, I use charge, and what I typically do is like I use it to be like a kind of a tank type character. That every time I charge and I land it, and I land it, my shields re- replenish entirely, and I use that. Kind of, like I I I made it go that way because like there was the other option that was like oh it just does more damage or like the biotic explosions more, but no like this way, I know that. I, like, if I charge into something, I need some survivability, and so always getting that shield replenish fits with the playstyle that I've kind of cultivated by this point in the game, that I'm getting to that higher level. Hmm. It's it's interesting, but I am, like, finally to the point where I've come back around. I'm now enjoying Andromeda's combat once more, uh, hmm. although the cover still feels bad. <laughs> uh but as as we keep diving into the arc because things keep going worse, we find out there must be something draining the power that's not letting us take off uh, at all, that's not letting us get this arc moving. Uh, we do stumble across a shrine for the old Pathfinder, which was maybe a little bit weird. I thought that was odd to have. Really? Well, I guess I guess it was... Okay, it was erected posthumously, though. That was the part that yeah. didn't click until just now. <laughs> I, was oh. like, I was like, why would some... What person has a shrine to themselves while they're still alive? Like, this is like some Helga Pataki nah, shit. Like, <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, and, and so we find out that there's a Mass Effect field generator down at the bottom that's kind of like... It's been put together by the Ket, which is a little weird. Uh, I, I think it was... It was it was implied like it was put together by the cat because obviously the sorry didn't know about it so i'm assuming they just put it together there so they could have like a base of operations for their boarding and all that but uh i, I thought it was no 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 because it had it was said that like an asari must have put it out as she was evacuating to, oh like, okay keep the whole of it together because like there's this gaping hole in the side of the ark no. right but the cat would need that anyways right because i mean as we later learn that's it's a bad thing if that stops working for them if that gets disabled too anyways that part was just weird i was just like okay there's just like a mass effect field here apparently that's something you can cobble together with household equipment that's good to know (laughs) um but we we get into another combat thing where we have to uh pull a cable kill the cat pull a cable kill the cat uh and after we do that we get kind of one of the larger story beats of this loyalty mission which again is weird because let's take a step back here this is Korra's loyalty mission this is about Korra ostensibly and yet mm. the the storyline that really like plays center here is about Sarissa and about the Asari Pathfinder and that's already kind of odd because it it's not like the Turian arc storyline was Vetra's loyalty mission you know it's mm. So that's already kind of weird, but uh, we get the succession log. So like the last mis- the last message that was recorded before uh, Ashara passed away and Sarissa became Pathfinder, and we find out that Sarissa was faced with either trying to defend Ashara, and either they both die or they you know basically run into certain danger to try and defend the Pathfinder, uh, who is also she's like the Pathfinder's bodyguard. There's a term for it that I forgot. It's like Tierna, Tienna, something uh, like that. Uh, um, basically, here she'd let us know. Yeah, something that Korra implies is like very sacred to the Asari. Um, but Sarissa let Ashara die to get the Ket data, uh, 
and obviously, uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, the the the, the phrase you mentioned was just war. You know, warrior who, who never gives up even when all is lost. I think is what she said. Mm-hmm. Like something like close to that, and she says in the cutscene. Yeah, 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 and and so obviously Cora takes that a little hard, and of course then cakes on a little bit of. <laughs> Did you know that this word in Asari means something? <laughs> mm. uh, so, Ken, I want to I want to hear from you how you felt about Sarissa's move. Uh, I saw where she was coming from, and I didn't like because you know Cora wants you to like take her side and be like, "Oh, this was an appalling thing that she did," but no one like I, I put in my notes like no one person is bigger than the lives of everybody else in this arc, not even the Pathfinder. So, yeah, like, Sarissa might have let the Pathfinder die, and yes, she did ascend to the Pathfinder role because of it, but I never felt like that was her intention. I feel like she wants to get that cat data so she can safely get everybody out of here. That seems like... Maybe it's not like the Andromeda Protocol, but it is the sensible choice to save thousands of people's lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Aaron, what did you think? I want to. I want to hear your thoughts. I also want. I also want to get Ken's take because why do you think she, she keeps it a secret? Why do you think she doesn't? Because you know, we'll get to that later. You know, at the end of the mission. But why do you think she is is secretive about that choice to to abandon her? I think it's. I mean, like the, the sort of reading that Cora has is that Sarissa wants to be the hero of, you know the Asari, but, and, like, she wants to be the Pathfinder, she wants to be the person that has, like, the glory in saving the Asari, where I think, what I personally, if I was in Swiss's shoes, my kind of gut reaction would be, like, I did this for the, you know, the good of everybody, but if everyone knows the truth and can assume my reasoning, then who knows how they react, like, what if I got exiled, what if I got, you know, straight up executed, what, if, I don't know what, how, how Asari law works and this kind of thing. But I think it's more of just, like, I don't really believe that she wanted, like, the glory of it. I think she just figured that if the truth of the situation was kept under wraps, that's, like, one less thing to divide everybody. I did not like this. (laughs) I did not like Sarissa doing this. (laughs) Um, Because, and maybe at first I was just kind of like, okay, you know, we need to hear what Sarissa's side is. Uh, and it's kind of hard to talk about this overall without then later contextualizing it with what we kind of get into later, but uh, the way I saw it was Sarissa is someone who believes in themselves very much. Like, Sarissa is very self-assured. Sarissa is very confident in herself. I mean, it does to some extent, when you have kind of been propped up your whole life as this paragon of the Asari Commandos, he literally wrote the manual on it, you do develop this feeling of confidence that that what you are doing is right. However, when she ends up in a situation, and, and through dialogue we kind of learn from the captain of the Ark and stuff, is that like, oh, Sarissa tends to do very reckless things things that end up endangering the people around her because she believes that she's doing the right thing and especially in this situation with ashara you have to wonder whether 
Sarissa considered that there was a risk of losing Ashara on the mission to get this Ket, these Ket protocols, this Ket plan to fly through the Scourge. Uh, And if she took a measured risk knowing that, you know, everyone could die trying to do this versus something that could have saved more people and kept the Pathfinder alive. I think it says something about her character that she considers so many lives around her expendable for whatever she decides to do. And so this this moment especially made me start to think of Sarissa as definitely a commando, definitely and definitely see why she would be effective as a commando, but not as a leader. And I think there's like a distinct difference between the two because if, you know, you drop her onto a planet and say you got to take out Ket headquarters, she's going to get it done. But if you put her in charge of the entire Asari population in Andromeda, what are the results going to be? Do you need somebody who's going to be a little bit more careful and calculated? Um, So that was my, like, larger takeaway from this, is that I think they try to frame it as Sarissa, and that's that's how Sarissa ends up, like, defending it. That's, you know, is, is this idea that, like, the the lives of all the Asari were more important than just the life of the Pathfinder. But I think it was... This was not the the first time that this had happened. It would not be the last time. So I was not a fan of Sarissa at this point. Mm. Um, but before we get to actually addressing that with her, uh, we have to kick the cat off the ship. And first we have this really cool fight in space where it's all muffled and stuff. I love it whenever Mass Effect decides to you know call attention to the fact that you are in space and you have these segments where you're fighting and you get to like... It's all quiet and all the sh- the shots sound like they're they're coming in from outside your suit and all that. Like it's a very cool effect. I always like it when they do that. And then we fight another freaking prefect. <laughs> How many more of these are there? Ken? <laughs> are we almost Two, done? Are we almost done with them? Because <laughs> if there are five of them, we've already fought three. So yeah, two. We fought three in a row. Let's be very specific about that. The last three episodes we've had, there's been a prefect in every single one of them. And they are just the worst. They are just not fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to whatever next week's episode is in terms of enemy variety that does not include the prefect. Because, although at this point, because I am more powerful, I, I kill a prefect in like two shield down situations mm. instead of like five but it's it still just takes forever to like slowly whittle down that orb and then you get into a situation where it's like right before the orb's about to die i need to make sure that i'm in cover and all my shields are up and my gun is mostly loaded up and i've got my ammo turned on and then the second it goes down I'm just like okay dump everything because it's literally only down for like two seconds so i just have to unload as much as i can um you can also you can also pull on it and you can get a few more seconds of shots in. Yeah, so I figured that out is that um, because it doesn't have shields in that moment, it is then vulnerable to, you know, things that... I, I don't know what to call them. They're not like status effects, but basically like manipulation effects, you know, like mm. tossing them and pulling them and stuff like that. So I did figure that out. And so the last on that last bit of health, I did my god is r1 and then l1 r1 is my my biotic lance so 
yeah this is also the point in the game where i have so many biotic abilities i'm starting to wish i was playing on pc so i could have like that whole keypad at my disposal rather than just the l1 r1 and then the combination of the two because Mm -hmm. it's i mean it's fine i'm like focusing on the abilities that i've been focusing on but it means that i don't really get to fly around different abilities as much and it means that there's like extra button presses and menus and stuff like that that i have to get to if i want to use them uh i mean this probably would have been a problem if i was playing a biotic in any of the other mass effect games too i mean it's the it's the problem i had with dragon age inquisition when i played a mage was that i just never felt like i had enough buttons at my disposal and i ended up going from xbox controller to uh keyboard so i could use more options at the same time Mm. uh but it, it it was a thing I've I've started to feel in this. But then Sarissa shows up, spaces the Valiant like a boss, and then we get a really... I thought this was an odd scene, them like making a shield around the ship that starts out very small and then somehow becomes like extremely huge, like massively gigantic. Um and also apparently bounces back bullets or something that was the part i didn't get i was like why i thought it was just going to absorb them but it like bounced them back at the cat ship and i was like how long have they been able to do this and why has nobody been doing this so far that seems like a really important thing (laughs) to know that you're able to do that um i feel like i've seen that kind of thing before though bouncing the bullets back not not absorbing them but like bouncing them back because we did, we did have the the segment. I, I think it was with the Moshi, right, where we had the shield and we were moving under the shield. But that was just protecting us from the bullets. I wasn't bouncing bullets back. Mm. This, it was very weird. I was like, wait, if you've been able to do this this whole time, why are you worried about the catch ship? You've got a bunch of Asari on the ship. At least one. It seems like at least one person, if not more, are able to project this kind of biotic power and do this sort of thing. I know it's exhausting, but you only need to do it once to take out the catch ship. <laughs> it was just very strange. I was like, where did this come from? <laughs> well, this seemed like a, it's, it seemed like a super clean way to to because it's close. It's close to the end of the mission, and then you just kind of blow up the the cat, the cat ship. Kind of just gets a barrage mm. of its own bullets and then explodes and it was very like oh we don't, we don't have to deal with like we don't have to figure out a diplomatic resolution to this conflict we don't have to to go over there and, and and board their ship it was very much like now it'll just be a quick answer i thought it was a little bit weird like eric but uh, you know the mission was already pretty long yeah they need to wrap it up at this point so that i guess that is a thing <laughs> um and, and so I did that, like the, I mean, I did just like that Korra like had to have that moment of like tucking it to, you know, save everybody. Cause oh yeah, she, you know, I it, it is weird. Like again, like I've got like there. I know at least one playthrough of this. I've had PB with me, and she's surprisingly like not interacting with this like storyline of being in the Sorry arc. So I was just like, I mean, if Korra's gonna be over here like hesitating, PB go or I can do. I'm like writer can do it. I don't know. I, I also had another... PB on this mission, yeah. and it is really weird how little she ends up interacting with the stuff that's going on. Although I did find it kind of funny because both my rider's reactions and PB's reactions seem to be like we had this one super like like we were kind of embarrassed to be with Cora. We were like, "Sorry, it's our friend. She's embarrassing." <laughs> like. <laughs> 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 
that was like the whole vibe I got the whole time, and I was like, oh man, this is like this is awkward a little bit. This, uh, this is not good. <laughs> like when you go to like a concert, you get like backstage passes, and like someone's just really geeking out over something. You're like, you need to like, you need to like reel it back in. You're at like 110 right now. You bring it back like 80. It's like, come on, <laughs> keep your cool. Yeah. Um, but now we get to like the one major, I think, choice in this in this loyalty mission. And again, this is a loyalty mission for Korra. So far, the only real development we've had for Korra is that she is conflicted over the stuff with Sarissa. Uh, but at this point, we get to basically choose... Well, A, we confront Sarissa about the information, and then we get to choose whether we want to make it public or not. And I'll tell you right now, I made that shit public. <laughs> I, I aired out those receipts because I, I did not like the idea... For, you know, I was willing to hear out what Sarissa's side of the story was, and it was a situation where the the matriarch or whatever was very much like, you know, if it was like Reka on the uh, on the Solarian arc, where they were very much like they were going on a suicide mission, they knew that there was no potential for them to get out, uh, then that was one thing. But it sounded like not only was the whole idea of the mission Sarissa's, it, it wound up getting the Pathfinder killed and ended up having no measurable benefit to the Asari. And also, when we confronted Sarissa about it, she's extremely defensive and is like, I did what I had to do. You better not say anything. There's nobody else here you'd replace me with anyways. And I was like, I'll fucking find somebody and <laughs> call me on that shit. Um, I just... It, it sounds weird to say, like, I just didn't like Sarissa's attitude. But at this point, like, I've assembled this whole team of, like, crack pathfinders who may not always be... Like the, you know, Reka. I obviously saved Reka, and and Reka was who they were intended to be. That was the Pathfinder that was elected or chosen or whatever. But I wanted people that were there for the right reasons, and I felt like with the Pathfinders so far, with Avidus and Reka and and Ryder uh, themselves, you had that. But having an Asari path, Pathfinder who's just immediately like. No, I'm making the right call, and if people die, like that's what's going to happen because I this is the way that I think it's going to work for all of us. I just did not gel with them. So even if the person who ends up replacing Sarissa, if you do choose this option, is Vidaria, and Vidaria is extremely green, extremely rookie. Uh, I I preferred that to the alternative. Now, Ken, you tell me why you chose what you chose. <laughs> I just I maybe it's maybe it's my old renegade tendencies coming out because like I I got why she did what she did and yeah Cora wants to frame it as like you betrayed your pathfinder you wanted to be the star the hero and I'm just like no it just like it's it feels like such a reasonable decision to like want this for the sake of you know the people that are still alive because you know the scourge has been the thing that is like they're not even at they haven't even gotten to the nexus yet and like the asari arc has already had so many problems navigating the scourge so like if she can find that not only is it going to help the asari it's going to help everybody else and it's just a that's a good i feel i felt like it was a good call to see something that's going to help the widest amount of people where yeah we had to lose the pathfinder for it but ultimately it's a it was a good thing that she did. 
Aaron, how did you feel about this this end choice here? I think because I was interested in what, what you said, Eric. You know what we know about Sarissa, but the thing is, we don't really know a whole lot about her. We look, no, obviously, we've heard what Cora has said before the mission. She got really built up. Before I know, Ken, you had a lot of those thoughts about how it's like, how are we supposed to trust a person that we don't know yet, based off just Cora constantly talking about her? But we didn't really have a whole lot of information to go off, and the whole mission itself is kind of built up. Like you get all this information about Sarissa, you you know, you expect like this ambivalent, you know, huntress who does no wrong, and then you get to that, and she she's kind of short with you. She's like, you know, mission above all else. Um, and it kind of makes sense in that, but you're kind of usually kind of disappointed. You're usually kind of like, oh, this is not what I expected. Um, but then what are, what are you expecting in a situation like this? So I, I kind of agree with Ken where I made that decision where, but she kind of made that there. I'll do one, two, three. She kind of made that decision with, with all, all that she had. And we, it's kind of tough for us to judge her as, as, as if that's wrong. Nah, I got rid of her. Videri all the way, man. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Uh, I, and also, I like the idea of my my crack team of rookies, and then Reka as like the the person off to the side who's just watching us get up to dumb shit and just like shaking their head and being like, oh. <laughs> "It's that is my head cannon." Um, so we we have now gotten to what is ostensibly the end of Korra's loyalty mission, with very little things that have happened involving Korra, but we do get to kind of taper it off with one last talk above. Uh, aboard the tempest and this is where i finally kind of got what they were going for with this loyalty mission because yeah for for the whole time i was like okay you know this is great sorry arc this fine why did cora need to be involved in this at all and you finally realize it where cora starts talking about how uh you know she's apologizing and saying that like Ryder was the right choice for pathfinder and the sense that I just got was that Cora is very much not. I, I think she saw a lot of herself in Sarissa, possibly, or maybe just didn't envy the kind of choices that the Pathfinder has to make. Mm-hmm. But you definitely get the sense that Cora is someone who has always been looking for, uh, like, like a. A foundation, someone that they can look up to, that they can follow, that they can have as their like shining beacon, uh, that they can have as either like a mentor or just as something that they can aspire to be. Uh, because Cora's personality is kind of just based around wanting to, <laughs> I don't want to say be somebody else, but uh, trying to get the approval and admiration of others and if she was put in that position where she was pathfinder she wouldn't be able to get that and she could end up making a lot of choices that would then not be beneficial to the initiative uh and it's it was kind of interesting to see her have that moment of like clarity and self-realization and it almost like for me it almost felt like i wish that was where the loyalty mission started was you know now like it kind of it, it's kind of weird because it ends on this note where Cora's like okay I have come to terms with the problems that I have like the personal issues that I have and I need to start working on them I need to start fixing them to make myself a better person and then it's like loyalty achieved Cora's <laughs> on board good job and I'm like that's a really weird time to pop up an achievement thing is <laughs> right after someone's like 
okay, you know, I've got, I've got things I got to take care of, you know, I, I'm going to take care of it. And then like party horns in the background, <laughs> like good job. But at the same time, it's the first real bit of what I felt has been character development for Korra in a way that feels productive and like empathetic and, and like valuable you know up to this point her character arc has been defined by what's been happening in the plot what's been happening with the asari arc what's been happening and finally without with all that stuff in the rear view cora gets to actually have personality and i'm like cool where has this been for so much of this game this is what i was looking for this is this is what i wanted and finally i can say that cora is not the worst human crewmate anymore in in the mass effect series because she mm. finally managed to ascend above the 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 depths of ashley but uh, <laughs> uh at at the same time uh it, it's just weird how late this feels to me i, I don't know how you felt about it ken I, I i don't know if it feels late i feel like it i mean it comes when things like okay let's use like Miranda from Mass Effect 2 as an example mm-hmm. where she has that same level of clarity after her loyalty mission after she's met her sister or or not depending on what you did and she has it and we're like I can let people in and like not have to be so distant and etc where I feel like you know Korra she loses one mentor in Alec and then she at least like loses the idea of Sarissa like these people that she looked like she said that she looked to like to be sort of like the trailblazers for everything that they're doing here. So I mean, and it even goes into the this last scene that we'll talk about after this on Eos, where here it's kind of like the point where I got all the things they were going for, like her being a, a, a sorry weeb, like her always looking towards some towards something else to have that guidance for here in this later scene in Eos because like what 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 ends up happening is that she wants to go to Eos because she tells Ryder that she's got a project that she's been working on and she wants to start planting a garden here on Eos and because of like the state of Eos it's like not necessarily livable soil mm-hmm. so like Ryder even points it out like you you probably won't even see it like you'll probably be gone by the time it's done and then she's like I don't really need like she says me along the lines of like I don't need somebody else's plan I just need my own beginning and I was like that is it was the point where like I it made me wonder like what would Korra what would Korra be like in the next game like where she is finally like starting yeah. to be on her own path and like has gotten to the point where she's not beholden to the standards of other people and it, it kind of makes me wonder like yeah we have all these this trouble with like the way that she talks about Asari and like does that sort of like insufferable characterization like that she is always up the ass of other people and other cultures that she doesn't necessarily belong to is it justified like when that the end of her arc is realizing I need to get away from that because like that is that's growth that's like understanding that maybe like the way that she's been going on about things has been not necessarily what's best for her and so like I don't, you know, in terms of like of the vacuum of Mass Effect Andromeda, you know, if you spend like eighty percent of the game not really liking a character, I don't really know that if the last twenty percent is good, that really not justifies it, but like makes up for it. But it at least felt like a very appropriate conclusion to that character story. 
it's it's funny you bring that up because that's the next point I was going to make and, and I was going to bring it to Aaron as well was this is maybe one of the first inklings I got in this game that made me think that they were not planning to just have a one-off game that they were planning to start a new series and it's funny you mentioned right. Miranda like that was the same thing I felt was if you think about Miranda in terms of just Mass Effect 2 she's a huge Cerberus loyalist like she's super into everything that Cerberus does and she's all about it and by the end of Mass Effect 3 she's a completely different character and mm-hmm. I you know we did our character rankings back during or no it was at the right when we started Andromeda we did our character rankings for Mass Effect 1 through 3 and I was thinking about it at this point like would I have cared as much about Miranda's character if I had only played Mass Effect 2 and right. Now that's making me think, you know, what could Korra be in future Mass Effects? But then also, would we ever get a Mass Effect Andromeda yeah. too? Uh, so, Aaron, I, I kind of wanted your thoughts, like, now that we're kind of wrapping up on the, let's call it, platonic section of Korra's uh, character arc in this game. Like, what did you think about Korra at this point? Well, I, I thought it was really good, but it's, it's a mixed response because there's a lot of info that I think the game doesn't do a good job of providing providing me or providing us um and that's you know for good reasons bad reasons because you look at cora's story she kind of like i think you, you find out in the tidbit of information i forgot where but that she she grew up in poverty she grew up on like an independent mm. uh ship somewhere and then she like joined joined the military as soon as you can join the alliance and they kind of jumped around for a few groups and then like her story kind of revolves around like acceptance and rejection is that she never really felt part of anything. It's like her, like I think what also her bionic powers kind of pushed her away from everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone was kind of always afraid of her. So the Asari were like the only group that she felt at home with. Um, like she felt like they accepted her. They weren't afraid of her powers. Um, she was actually one of them. And so I, in that regard, I do think it goes beyond the the We Able to story where she's like just obsessed with the culture that she found right. home in. Right. But she it was she found a reason to be obsessed with that and a reason to really care for it. But then. She does get rejected from that, from that group. She does get pushed away. I think it's partially because she's human and she doesn't really, you know, to them, she doesn't belong with there. So it kind of really underlies all these layers of rejection. And this whole story is about her coming to terms with that rejection, like seeing that this group isn't this, like, fantastical group of warriors that she thought mm-hmm. it was. It was, like, really flawed. There's these rookies that don't know what they're doing. There's this leader that's incredibly flawed that committed, you know, this you can consider it a crime and a sorry culture, all these things. So it's her coming to terms with that and learning to be independent. And I actually hadn't thought what you said, Eric, where it's like this is just the beginning of her of her arc across, you know, three games or however many games. That would have been a really good setup because you would have started off as this person who just didn't know where she belonged. She's finding a home here. And you, you both talked about mentors. And she, she mentioned mentors, in, you know, when she's talking to you about, like, what, why you're the Pathfinder instead of, and why Alec picked her or you instead of her. And she mentions that she'd always look for mentors, always look for a home instead of being leader. And she said that she would have made the same mistakes um, if she had been Pathfinder. She would have, you know, done a similar thing and let Ashari, you know, left her for dead. So it's kind of interesting seeing her come to the light like that, where it's like this whole story about acceptance. But then the whole game is like, if you're playing this game, it's it's really hard to get all that in one swoop. You're going to miss a lot of things. It's not really told in the best way. And it's not like it's Bioware's fault. It's just kind of hard to get all that story in one scoop like so i wanted to pose a question like would you guys be more a fan of her if she was if she was an asari if of course it's all that 
was an Asari character, would that change anything for you? Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely have, like, made her sort of, like, like, like not, not even obsession, but, like, her sort of reverence for Asari culture, at least, like, more palatable. But I also don't know, like, what her story would look... Because I don't think her story is necessarily applicable to an Asari. I feel like it is, despite all my problems with it, it is very much like a human in the Mass Effect universe story. So, I, would, I guess I'd be more interested to see what that would look like. I think maybe my issue isn't even so much with the idea, it's with the execution. Like, the idea yeah. of having this... And, and maybe there is merit to saying that all of this was intended. Korra was intended to be insufferable early on, so you could see this sort of development and have it feel rewarding. But I just feel like the way it's executed doesn't sell that. If that was the if that was the point, it it doesn't do that effectively enough. Because within a vacuum, I think this loyalty mission is actually fairly well done. Both in just as like a general mission for like the Asari arc and also just in development for Korra. But at the same time, it, it's all the stuff that's led up to this. The the dialogues that Korra has had prior to this and the the way her character was kind of relegated to this very one note uh sort of sort of thing like like all the human companions always are, except that doesn't make as much sense in Andromeda because you don't have this situation where you have to have these characters present at all times like he did in previous mass effects but for some reason Korra still kind of ends up serving that role kind of being that miranda or that uh that that caden to to shepherd slash rider and i i think my my issue is largely just with the execution because i we can then like segue this into the romance talk which is Korra's romance has a lot of resources put into it let me tell you what Korra gets a lot of attention in the romance department, which maybe weirds me out a little bit because I, I'm only speaking for myself and anecdotally, but I don't know anybody who romanced Korra in this game. Yeah. I feel like most people that I know of who romanced people in this game, it was like Jal or it was PB or Suvi is one that I've actually heard a surprising amount of time. Gil, um, all characters that are not named Korra. <laughs> and, uh, but when you go and you watch the scene that they get, uh, it's really it's really weird. You can like tell how much time went into making Korra have this scene, but I feel like not even the story. We, we talked about how in previous Mass Effects you can almost look at Liara as being framed in Mass Effect One as this like canon romance for Shepard because of the way that Liara is just kind of brought in at the right time and you always check in with her after all these different missions with all the visions stuff like that so like liara's placed very front and center uh but cora is not that in fact cora is mm. directly antagonistic and i don't know if that's supposed to somehow appeal to people who because can i i think this is this is a heterosexual romance right this this right. only that okay I don't know if that's supposed to then appeal to people who would be playing a male rider, but speaking as a dude who would be that target demographic, nah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's... Uh, like characters like Vetra have much better writing in that respect of being that very 
intimidating romance aspect so Cora just ends up feeling like very standoffish in a way that's like if I was at a, a house party and hanging out and I talked to Cora I'd be like cool I'm gonna go hang out in another part of the house for the rest of the night now because <laughs> I want to be around Cora um it's and, and and again like there it's funny that I'm thinking about this but like in Fire Emblem Three Houses which I I beat very recently uh there's a character named Leone who's like completely obsessed with your father Geralt and so even when you romance Leone until the very end of it she's always talking about Geralt and how great Geralt is and how Oof. how cool Geralt is and how awesome like it's a very Cora vibe and, and like Cora does a lot of the <laughs> same things and so when it suddenly turns to and I will tell you I did romance Leone because I wanted to see how that thing ended and it it ends very well and in a way that doesn't feel as weird, but you still kind of, kind of like shake that weird feeling that you get leading up to it, where they're like constantly talking about your dad and how awesome your dad was, and it's how like much they your sister. Oh, Ken. <laughs> it's literally what it's like. Ken, we use I, subtext yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> Since when? You're right. We don't. We don't. When's Ginny on again? I just. <laughs> <laughs> not soon enough <laughs> so i just like go ahead Aaron. i i, I just think it's uh, i'll give a quick glance so it's so different because you don't see as much in three houses i played three houses through three times Ooh. and i reviewed that game too and i i have 140 hours in that game and leone is one of the worst characters and i can't imagine why you would want it's basically like eric you wanted to fuck your dad is what you were saying <laughs> um you wanted you <laughs> He really wanted to get with Gerald. He's a cool character. I'm not nothing against that. Um, uh, but with but with Cora, you never really you never really see any. Like, Alec is such a, sm- a smaller part of Andromeda than Gerald because Gerald's in 50 hours of Three Houses. Mm-hmm. You see Gerald nonstop uh, until you know that one mm, yeah, the thing happens. Um, but uh, this is so different. But I I do think there is an audience for Cora because she it's just, it's just like the the, the classic. Yeah, you know, character trope where it's just, she has so many layers up that you really have to peel them back. Because I mm. didn't, I didn't romance her either. I played, I, I did PB, but if you look at some of her dialogue, and I, I, I checked before the podcast, she actually talks about Sarissa and how she shouldn't have idolized her and how she's grown. So the romance kind of does like show some growth. It really is like a romance for character growth, and really not a romance for like I love this character. I think it's in, interesting in that, um, but I kind of I do disagree about the whole the whole you know fucking your sister part <laughs> <laughs> well in that respect like well that that shows to me why i don't like this idea of this romance because if if their romance arc is them growing as a character i'm not as interested in that because i would rather romance a character that's already got their shit figured out that's already like a normal person it might have normal person problems but it doesn't like so vastly define their identity about around wanting to fuck my father so <laughs> it's um it's yeah it, i'd maybe be interested then in some of the concepts of that but i i think just as a romance by itself it it, it falls a little flat i mean can you have here in your notes that's like you don't buy the cora rider relationship like you don't you just don't see it clicking and i feel the same way like mm-hmm. i feel like there are other characters where romance is it, like leads it's let in more naturally than than yeah. here it's like if i had to compare like the dynamic we use a lot of mcu comparisons like that was like 
like what character do I mostly associate Ryder with? And it's mostly like Star Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, yeah. And what is like the more stoic, kind of reserved woman character in that? And that's fucking Black Widow. So like, it's, it you put those two together, and like you want to ship them and the way that the game does, and it's like they don't. Those personalities don't mix, in my opinion. Like the person who's like this very stern by the book type. And this person who, like, is basically making up everything as they go along. And that's, that's something that frustrates me about the fact that, like, they put so much time... They clearly put so much time and effort into Korra's romance. And a lot of that feels like, despite all of the sort of, like, progressive nature of the way that the Mass Effect series has generally gone when it comes to portraying romance, it still feels like it is catering towards, like, a very specific heterosexual male demographic. And, may, like... You, like you even said, Eric, like you don't really get the appeal of the, the core relationship, but like they, they're positioning what who is supposed to be like the female lead as this person that they think that they assume that straight men are going to go to to. But in general, like you said, like I don't, I don't think I've met a person who's romance Cora. At least not personally. Like I'm sure that I'm sure you were, I am sure you are out there. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sorry that I'm like denying your existence. But I don't know, like the. I just don't buy it. Like, I just... And it's frustrating to see, like, basically everybody else get kind of shafted in terms of, like, the actual romance scene. Like, Jal and PB have, like, kind of, you know, equivalent romances. Like, their scenes are kind of more, uh, explicit. But then you get, like, people like Suvi and Gil who get, like, a fade to black. And I'm just like, could you not have put that much work into the characters that are more interesting that people gravitate towards more it's it's weird and i i I feel like this also would have been better if like cora was a more well-developed character if we didn't have all these issues with it um is what is that's that's cora in a nutshell you know like there there are interesting things to pull out but i think as a whole cora ends up being on the weaker side of the overall tempest crew um which makes her interesting to like pick apart as a character and discuss but also just ends up being kind of you know just lacking a little bit compared to what we consider like the bog standard of like bioware companions i do i do have to say i say that if uh rider and cora are star lord and black widow then black widow is like obsessed with gamora and gamora's people (laughs) and wants to become them oof (laughs) oh geez Oh boy. Okay, so b- before we get moving on here, uh, quick housekeeping. Again, this is Norm DFM. We do have a Patreon, Patreon, Patreon.com slash Norm DFM. You can go there if you want to help keep the lights on around here, if you want to keep us going. We're getting kind of close to that Dragon Age mark, so if we get there, you will then subject me and to a lesser important to me aspect ken to all of the dragon ages fuck <laughs> so, you look it's, it's your playtime not mine i care about my playtime so uh if you want to help us hit that goal you can head on over to patreon.com slash where we have excellent patrons who donate who contribute including one excellent ruben thank you so much if you want your name shouted out like ruben you head over there you hit that mark you can send us questions you can uh you can talk about stuff it's whatever and also, uh, I do want a quick shout out. We did get one email from a fan this week that I wanted to quickly answer because we have actually answered this on air before, but Brian emailed us 
asking, uh, did Eric try any mods for the Mass Effect games? Uh, when I first played the first Mass Effect, I used an HDR mod that was like specifically for the PC build because apparently there were some issues with the PC build that both made it like weird to play, like it would get oddly framey for no reason, and then also Turian faces would be blurred out like they were being blurred out on camera so you couldn't tell who they were. <laughs> and so I used a mod to fix that and also just kind of generally beef up the game. Uh, since I have not tried any of the other mods for any of the other Mass Effects, but I have been meaning to go back and play some of the ones that changed the ending of Mass Effect 3, like reorder events and cutscenes and things like that, because I am interested to see where that's at. I've also heard that there is a complete revamp of Mass Effect 3 that someone's been working on for some time that's like a completely new addition that turns Earth into an entire hub planet with all new missions and things like that. That sounded very interesting, so I do have plans on getting to that sometime before the end of uh, Normandy FM, whenever that may come. But uh, in general, uh, I want to thank Aaron. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for hanging out with us and talking all things Cora. Where can the people find you if they want to follow you online? Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great time. They, you can find me at uh, Garth's Production on Twitter, and that's that's the main place right there. That is the best place. Twitter is the hell site, but it's also the best way to follow all of our work. Uh, as always, you can find us at Normandy FM Show. On Twitter, we'll post all our updates there as well. And stay tuned for next week because, as I, I believe I said this last week, but we can like pretty much confirm it at this point, we have a straight run of guests all the way through all of these loyalty missions. Every single one of our loyalty missions will have a guest on. And next week, we will be announcing, we will have Liana Rupert. Rupert? Rupert? I'm so sorry. I always mean to ask people how to pronounce their names before I announce them on air because I always end up butchering them. Uh, Liana will be coming on to talk about about Liam. We're going to be exploring the second of our human crewmates here. Uh, sadly, Suvi and Gil will not be getting their own episodes. Uh, I'm also going to put that out there now, but I think we're going to be talking more about them later on in the season, so we will get to them. We're just going to spend a little bit more time on the folks who do get full-on loyalty missions. So, for Aaron, for Ken, for myself, thank you everyone who tuned in. We'll see you next time on Normandy FM. Dormidia film. Dormidia film.